Let's dive back into Philippians. If you were with us last week, we started off our series on Philippians, um, learning about how Philippians started. There's three people that started the church in Philippi. Um, Paul was the missionary that went there and told them about Jesus. And these three very unlikely people come to know Jesus, and this is how the Philippian church started. And you've got Lydia, uh, who's probably a little bit more wealthy. Uh, You've got a a slave girl who is also demon-possessed, so just real colorful character. And then, uh, then the Roman guard and his family. And these three people start what we know as the church in Philippi, and it's a real church full of real people, uh, messed up people just like you and I, and Paul just loves this church. I mean, when you look at the book of uh, Philippians, it is the most joyful book in the Bible. The word joy is, uh, is, is said 19 times in a book that takes about 15 minutes to read, so Paul is very excited about this church. He says things like, I tell you to rejoice in the Lord. I tell you again, rejoice. Like Paul is just filled with this sort of audacious uh, sort of joy, this, this tough joy. It's not like a fake plastic smiles. It's a real joy in the midst of a really hard situation. And we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about what Paul is going through um, as he's writing this letter. But for all of us to remember this, the book of Philippians, um, we're talking about mental health. Um, But the the book of Philippians is not a book about mental health. So we're not trying to take God's word and force it into this subject. What we're really doing is we're looking at Paul, who himself is mentally healthy, and we're reading a a letter from him. And the book of Philippians is really a book of mental health on display. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So all of us, me included, we are going to follow Paul. And we're going to look at what he says in this book of Philippians, but we're also going to read between the lines a little bit and go, okay, what does it take to have this sort of resilient and audacious joy in the midst of really hard circumstance? And for all of us, we know this, is, this has been a hard season. Um, I'm reading a book called uh, Resilient that's really good. I'd really recommend it. And I've forgotten the author of it, all three services. Does anybody know the author of Resilient? It's a new book. It's, who? Yeah, John Eldridge, I knew it, I knew it, okay. Somebody bailed me out every service. Um, uh, John Eldridge, it's a really good book, but um, in the beginning he talks about, you know, uh, 2020 was really hard. And it was hard because of a pandemic, it was hard because of politics, it was hard because of social unrest, it was hard because we didn't know what to count on anymore, and in a moment, the things that we thought were really reliable were not. And I, I know this, this maybe seems like an overuse of the word, but we went through a national and international trauma. We really did. And we're trying to dust ourselves off and go, I'm fine, it's no big deal, you know, I'm fine. Are you, you're upset, I'm fine, you know. And history will look back at the immensity of that moment for us. Um, it really is a historic sort of moment that we're in. And John Eldridge said, that was hard enough. Now's the aftermath. You know, when you go through something traumatic, you kind of, do what you can to buck up and get through it. And, and then there's this aftermath of, of everything that was so steady for us being unsteady and it threw a lot, of, a lot of us off kilter. And last week we talked about a lot of people even didn't, they didn't make it in the church. They really, they fell away. They stopped doing, going to church. They stopped practicing. And, and those of you that are here, 
You're the remnant that's left behind. And I, I believe the church is more potent now than it was before. The Lord's always going to make something good come out of it. But we went through something really difficult. And John Eldridge was just saying, we need to become resilient. We need to have that sort of resilient joy. And this is what we see in the life of Paul. The circumstances of Paul's life are not good. And we know if you have good mental health and, and you have a good grasp on who God is, um, your ups and downs will not go with the circumstances of your life. If you've got a mental health philosophy that's only good when things are good, then that's not a very good philosophy. <laughs> um, and we are getting put to the test, you know, when things are not real great. But the good news is, is that we could get to that place, that we could look at the life of Paul and, and get there. And in the life of a believer, there are um, there what we would call in kind of church history, the dark night of the soul. And I've talked to a lot of people, even this Sunday, that are saying, hey, I'm, I'm just kind of in a dark place. I love Jesus, um, but I'm going through something really hard, or anxiety's come back, or um, depression has come back. And there's two things that I want to say. First today, like, this is, that's pretty normal given what we've gone through. So be honest, be open with people, share where you're at. But also we have to look with some hope and say there will be a day when we see it behind us though, right? There will be a day, there are some things that we could do to come together to get stronger and more resilient in the Lord. And one of those things is diving into the book of Philippians. Now open up your book uh, to, open up your Bible to Philippians Chapter 1, verse 12, and, uh, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Normally, I like the ESV, but for some reason today, I'm feeling the NIV. So uh, if you've got your app, you could change the NIV. Um, Paul says this, Philippians 1, 12. He said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, Paul, as he's writing this, we have to realize he is in a really dire situation. Uh, he's in prison um, but he's most likely in a private residence, uh, in prison in that private residence. So there's not like the kind of classic jail, you know, jail cell sort of vibe to, to Paul's imprisonment. But he says in here, and he says twice in this passage that he is in chains. Uh, now, most likely Paul had a metal clasp around his wrist that had, a, that had an 18-inch chain attached to his guard. And every two hours, that guard would change. So he's sitting there, chained to somebody else, not, very, not a lot of chain. You got, you know, a foot and a half of chain. Um, and he's sitting there uh, day and night with guards that are on rotation. Now, I don't know much about, um, like, early Roman um, uh, chain design, but I would guess that this clasp was not very ergonomic. Like, it probably wasn't fur-lined and, you know, with, like, a nice rubber lining in it. Paul is wearing this rough clasp around his wrist that's probably wearing his skin raw. Like you can imagine that like it's probably driving him crazy. Like every time he moves, it's bringing more pain to his body. So Paul is physically very uncomfortable, chained to this, chained to this guard. Every two hours, most likely, they would change guards. So he'd have up to 12 guards a day. 
Um, and you would imagine that every two hours that he's getting woken up. So he's not sleeping great. He's not like on a Tempur-Pedic, just having a great time. Like he is getting woken up every two hours. He's not sleeping. So he's, which again is not great for mental health, you know, like he's not sleeping. He's physically uncomfortable and he has zero privacy. So we don't have to use very much uh, of an imagination to imagine that when he has to go to the bathroom, it's pretty awkward. It's pretty awkward. And this is Paul. He has no privacy. He's, he's physically uncomfortable. He's in pain. And I think if we were in that position, or if we had a friend that was in that position, we would give that person or ourselves a lot of grace, right? Like, I think Paul had every right to sit there and go, look, church, I've been meaning to write, but I've just, I've had a really hard time, you know? I'm, I'm in chains, I'm physically uncomfortable, I could barely function all day long. I'm so sorry I haven't written you in a long time. I really do, you know, I want, I've been meaning to, but I just can't, I can't do it. And I think we'd give, we'd give them a lot of grace, right? We'd go, yeah, you're, you're in a lot of pain. You're uncomfortable. You're, you're going through a lot, Paul. Just, just hang out, just try to get through it, you know? And yet this is not what Paul does. This is miraculous. Paul does not give in to a victim mentality. I don't know how else to say it. Like this idea of like, you're just ruminating over all the things that are wrong, which Paul had a huge list of them. He could go over those all day long and just go, I, I don't have any opportunity. I don't have any, like I'm physically, he has no idea what his future looks like. He doesn't know if he's gonna be executed or not. Like he has every right in the world to devolve into this sort of like hermit in his mind, Right? And yet Paul says this, which is so miraculous. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul is writing letters from jail. He is encouraging other people. He is meeting with church leaders. Like this is, this is not how Paul sees it. Paul does not see the, himself as a victim of circumstance. He sees a circumstance in his life as an opportunity for the Lord to move. This is how Paul thinks. And Paul, Paul's saying, I know this has advanced the gospel. I love that word advance. Uh, it's this, this word in the Greek, it's pro, prokope, which, gosh, first service, I said it so effortlessly. That one, prokope. Um, it means to advance. It's a military word. So when Paul says, I know that, I've, that it's advanced the gospel where I'm at right now, what he means is this, like this word advance was often used in like Roman soldiers when they're coming up against an enemy. They're like pushing so hard, they're clearing out forests. They're like, they're working really hard to move their troops forward. And Paul is saying, I know that this seems like I'm in a dire situation, but brothers and sisters, you have to know that what I'm going through is advancing the gospel. It's pushing it forward. And you can almost imagine that Paul is feeling that, like he's going, I am pushing this thing forward. I'm giving everything that I've got to advance the gospel in this season of life that I'm at. This is Paul. It says in there that he's, he said, in the whole palace guard, he says, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. That word palace guard um, really, it's this word praetorian guard. And the praetorian guard uh, was, was a very elite group of guards. 
This is not like low-functioning sort of guards. These are guys that have access to the emperor himself. Like this is, they have access to the highest levels of political power. Oftentimes they said if, if these, these guards gave their um, endorsement to a political candidate, that candidate won. So these guys are not just lowly guards. They are powerful guards that have the ear of the most powerful people in Rome. And Paul's going, you guys don't understand. Like, I've got a captive audience here. This is an opportunity. This is not, a, this is not something for me to wallow in. Like, this guard right here has the ear of the most powerful people in Rome. And he's going, it's starting to spread throughout the entire palace guard. He's going, this is impacting this nation in a huge way. God has opened up doors. And though I'm very uncomfortable, I know that he's serving, that this is serving to push the purposes of God forward. The gospel is everything to Paul. This is the reason he lives. When I was young, I, um, I battled a lot with depression. And, um, and I grew up with a really great family. My, um, my parents were great. They were, they were really awesome. Uh, they were watching me last service, and my mom said I did good, so I know I did good because my mom thinks I'm cool. Um, um, really like, great, great family. Um, but none of us knew Jesus, so I, I kind of just grew up in a secular environment. And um, at a young age, I just I felt very sensitive, and, and maybe I was just sensitive to emotional things. Maybe that's why I went to art school. Um, um, but I felt even at a young age that I was just just sensitive to to things, and and I felt lonely a lot. I felt a lot of um, I felt alone in a crowded room pretty often, and I grew up just feeling that way. And one thing I really loved was science. And um, I've said before, my favorite book growing up was this page turner called Quasars, Pulsars, and Black Holes. Um, and uh, we would dive, I would just like dive into the world of the space-time continuum. And, and I remember learning when I was young that uh, a light year is going the speed of light for one year. So it's the distance that you cover when you go the speed of light for one year. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's really fast. And I know that because I'm a nerd. Like, I, it's very fast. Um, and, and I started to think about, like, as, as I was learning more and more, I would hear, like, that star is 2,000 light years away or something. And I'd go, wow. That means the light that's hitting my eye is 2,000 years old. Like the light hitting me from that star happened 2,000 years ago and it took that much time for it to get to me. Like that is mind-blowing. And if you have a biblical perspective, this is fodder for worship, right? Like this is like, wow, God is so big. Like we have no idea. And that the universe is this big, he spoke it into existence. How crazy is that? And that God created all of this and yet he cares about me? How crazy is that? Like, that in a biblical perspective, this should elevate our worship. But outside of a biblical perspective, it just ended up making me feel a lot more lonely. And I thought, gosh, if I'm so small and I'm here for 100 years or less, and if I'm lucky, two generations of people will remember who I am, and then after that, no one will remember me. And I remember even at a young age just kind of absorbing that, going, this is sad. Like, what a sad way to live. And this is what meaning in our life gives us because then I gave my life to Jesus when I was a teenager and I looked at it completely different. 
And I was going, wow, this thing that I thought my whole life was bad news and that made me feel so alone is actually amazing that God would create such an expansive universe, something so beautiful too. It's not just utilitarian, it's beautiful. We're getting all these new images back you know, from that new telescope. It's awesome, like I thought I knew what Jupiter looked like. Then I saw a picture, I'm like, I didn't know it looked like that, you know? This is awesome. And it pushes us into deeper relationship with God when we have a deep purpose in our life. I read in uh, Psychology Today, there was this interesting uh, article about mental health and, um, and having a strong sense of purpose and, and what that does for your mental health. And this is what it said in the article. It says, research shows that individuals who have a strong sense of purpose and meaning in life tend to have better mental health, overall well-being, and cognitive function compared to those who lack a sense of purpose. Individuals with a sense of life purpose are less likely to have heart attacks, strokes, dementia. They tend to be better at stress management and better at sleeping, which is awesome. <laughs> People with life purpose have improved brain function, including overall cognition and memory, and tend to have lower instances of depression. So you get like all the things. I mean, I was reading through this, like, I don't know what you're missing. You know, like when you go through it, you go, wow. Deep life meaning makes such a difference in our life. What was interesting was, at the end of the article, it posed this question. It was like, but how do you find meaning, you know? And from a secular humanist perspective, that's quite the conundrum. Because you lay out all these things, you go, this is so good for us, but how do you find meaning in life? And I think our culture, you know, there's different things. It's like, Work can give you some meaning, you know, and if you've ever been unemployed, you know, it feels very meaningless and hopeless, and so people that get work after being unemployed, it gives a lot of hope, you know, and, but then it gives way, if you keep going, into workaholism, which is not good for you, where all of your, everything that you get out of life, all of your identity is wrapped in the thing that you do, which then one day you retire from that thing, and you go, who am I, you know? It falls short. Right now, culture is telling us sexual identity. They're trying to identify you. Like deep down, your deep identity by, um, by your sexual identity or your um, gender identity, all of these things that when you plumb the depths of that lead to nothing but pain and depression. It's painful. It's not who we are. And then there's some good things. You know, there's some good things that give us some meaning. Um, I think family is one of those really good things. And this is kind of countercultural counter right now, I get this, but um, we have this, this idea that for you to have meaning in your life, you need to not have a family, you just need to work really hard, um, and then you need to really build a career for, for yourself, and then later on family can happen. And let me tell you, this is countercultural, but getting married and having kids is a very good thing. It's a very good thing. God created us to be fruitful and to multiply. There's something really good in that. And I get so sad, especially seeing young people and the way that people are talking to them, going, oh, don't worry about it. You could just take care of that later. That is not true. Getting married and having kids is beautiful. It gives you a lot of purpose in life. It's good. Now, some of you are called to be single. That's okay. That's all right. I could see a handful of people smiling in the room. I, I was gonna call you out too. Paul says, if you could be single and serve the Lord, great, awesome, that's good. And as good as family is, as awesome as that is, 
that will never fully satisfy the desires in our heart. What Paul is doing is he is showing us what the true meaning of his life is, and honestly, the true meaning of our life, and that is to push the gospel forward wherever we're at. This is the kind of thing, this foundational thing. I was talking about this last week. You know, as we're looking at mental health, there are these functional things, right? There's these things like, hey, maybe you should stop watching really stressful news. And hey, maybe you should not check your phone first thing in the morning. Hey, maybe you should go to counseling. There's some real practical things that really help. Um, Maybe you should start working out. Um, Some very practical things. Then there are foundational things. And, um, And this is one of those foundational things. Our identity is to be wrapped up in Jesus, to be wrapped up in the gospel of Christ. That's the thing that gives us that sort of audacious joy and hope that we have. And this Paul, his circumstances are terrible, and he's going, I see the purpose of my life is to push the gospel forward at all costs. And instead of seeing problems, I see opportunities. And this is Paul. And this leads him into something very practical. Uh, Philippians 1, let's, let's jump into verse 15. And Paul says this, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The lat- latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they, that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So Paul, again, is a real guy. He's telling people about Jesus. I think we assume everybody loves Paul, and I don't think that that's true. And there are people that are going, this is a great opportunity. I love the way that uh, William Barclay, he's got a really great commentary on uh, Philippians, but he says this. He talks about that word selfish ambition. That word selfish ambition really has a connotation of you're just doing it to make money and to climb the corporate ladder. Like people are preaching Christ like that. And he says this, he said, so there are those who preached even harder now that Paul was in prison for his imprisonment seemed to present them with a heaven sent opportunity to advance their own influence and prestige and to lessen his. So Paul's going, some people are preaching just for money. Luckily, we don't deal with that anymore today, right? It's just not a problem anymore. <laughs> no, it's, it's still a problem. You know, it's still one of those things. And I think it's sad to see how many churches are, you've got leaders that are having moral failures or leaders that are burning out or, or churches that are falling apart or churches that didn't make it through 2020. I told you last week, 20,000 pastors in America quit in 2020. Like, that's crazy. So there's a lot of people that are coming with a selfish ambition. And I know it makes us feel good to make pot shot, t- take pot shots on Facebook, but I, I'll just, I hate to break it to you. It doesn't help at all. Um, all we could do is pray for these churches, pray for restoration of these leaders. And we have to have the mind of Paul when it comes to other church leaders. And this is what he says. He goes, some are preaching Christ out of a, a really bad motive. Some are pre- preaching with a great motive. And he said, this is how he response. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's going, I don't really care. I don't care what their motivation is. I really don't. They're talking about Jesus. Great. 
they're hurting, I'm hurting for them. I'm gonna be praying for them. Like Paul is not worrying himself. He's not wringing in his hands, worrying about the motivations of other people because it doesn't do anything, right? I don't care who it is, whether it's a church leader, someone in your family, someone at work. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I think I've lost a lot of sleep over silly things where I start running it over my head and going, you know what, so-and-so did this. Maybe they think this, and maybe they're trying to do this. And if they're trying to do this, then they probably have been doing this for years, and that's why they did this thing. Stuff that I have no idea, right? I don't know. You don't know. When you're sitting there ruminating over this stuff and losing sleep, you have no idea the motivations of other people. I'm sorry. And Paul is not worrying about that. I don't know what the motivations of our political leaders are. They don't seem great, but I'm not sure. <laughs> if you're worried about the motivations of our current, you know, leader, fine, good. But I, I hate to tell you, it's not going to change anything. If you're worried about the motivations of Trump or Biden, interesting, interesting thought exercise, but it's not going to change anything, you know. And Paul is not worrying about the motivations of other people. I love the way that King David said this in Psalm 139. He said, search me and know me, God. David is humble enough to know he doesn't even really know his own motivations. David's going, I think they're good. I don't know, but Lord, search me. If there's any wicked way in me, search it out because I'm not really aware of it. In Proverbs, it's so, it's so funny the way that that's written. Proverbs 16 says, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. We all think we have great motives and everyone else has terrible motives. Can we just say that? <laughs> Let's just all be on the same page with that. But at the end of the day, Paul's going, I'm not worried about that. Because guess what? If you're worried about the motivations of our politicians, motivations of your family or your coworkers, you actually have no idea what they're going through, what they're thinking. And at the end of the day, I don't care where you line on the political spectrum, where you line with your family or whatever, that person that you're worried about, Jesus died for that person. Trump, Biden, Jesus died for them. It is the great equalizer for all of us, you guys. It's the great calming force that should come over us of going, Jesus loves everybody, including me. And Paul's like me, the chief of all sinners. Like Paul is very aware of where he falls short. And we need to be a people that are aware of that too. Because here's the thing. No matter who we're worried about, no matter what we're worrying about, the gospel needs to be the core of our motivation in life. It is the only true, pure, good motivation in life. Philippian church did not have a New Testament. Like they couldn't, they didn't know John 3.16. They didn't know that. They didn't have it. What did they have? They had the gospel, right? It's the gospel. That's all they had. And they were preaching to each other and they were diving into the Holy Spirit together. They were learning from one another. They're learning from guys like Paul. Paul didn't have a New Testament. He wrote two-thirds two of it. He didn't have a New Testament. He had the gospel. At the foundation of who we are is the gospel. 
that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians says that he conveyed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians says it wasn't just that we were bad people that are made better because of Jesus. We were in a hopeless situation and we were enemies of God. But then Jesus came. But then he came and he bridged the gap that none of us could do. We couldn't work hard enough to do it. We couldn't follow enough rules to pass a test. Jesus did it for us. And God, forgive us for letting the gospel grow cold in our hearts if we've been following Jesus for a long time. If there's nothing else, we have to sometimes preach the gospel to ourselves and go, remember this? Ryan, remember that you were in the kingdom of darkness and God pulled you out of it? Remember where you were at, where you've come? And especially when you look at the gap between who you are and who you want to be, that's a big gap, right? But when you look back at what Jesus did, you go, okay, Lord, you've done a lot, and I'm choosing to believe that you're going to do a lot. 